You know, the teaching ministry of Jesus was unlike anyone else's. I mean, just a stunning difference. When He came on the scene and when He began to teach the people and to move among the people and and to bring truth, divine revelation to light, it, it it was unlike anything the people were used to hearing. Even John the Baptist, who was a fiery prophet there in the wilderness, Luke 4.32 tells us when when Jesus had left Nazareth and came down from there and and went on out to Capernaum and set up His ministry and began teaching there, Luke 4.32 says they were amazed at His teaching for His message was with authority. See, even John the Baptist said there is one coming after me the, the, the thong of whose sandal I am unworthy even to untie. He, he's greater than me because He was before me. And so John was under the authority of another. But Jesus comes along and He is talking as if it's His own word. As if even when He's quoting Scripture and even when He's declaring uh, Hebrew Scripture, Old Testament truths, He's speaking as though He was the one to originate it. And of course we know He was. He is. But Matthew chapter 7, verse 29, and Mark chapter 1, verse 22, they include something. They say the people were amazed at His teaching, for His message was with authority, not as the scribes. They didn't teach with authority, because they had none. And I think even if they tried to trump it up, it wasn't the same. Man, when Jesus started to teach, it was different. And the rabbis, by Jesus' time, some roughly four or five hundred years after the voice of the last prophet, Zechariah and Malachi kind of rounded out those prophets and then seeming silence for a long period of time until John the Baptist came on the scene. But by that time, the rabbis already were way off on tangents of tradition, focused on the, the oral interpretation of the law, such that I really wonder if people didn't at times feel like no one was teaching the Bible anymore. And the modern equivalence is not lost on me. Because I feel that sometimes. Here's a simple test. Go online and just see how many just straight Bible teachers there are out there. Not that many. And in Jesus' day, He comes on the scene speaking the Word. Teaching the Word with power and authority and anointing unlike anybody else. And the Word should be powerful. Right? Hebrews 4.12 tells us the Word of God is living and active. What other book can claim that? Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Hey, I can't do that. You can't do that. The Word of God can. And so more than casting out demons, even raising the dead, healing, Jesus spoke divine truth with authority and simplicity, especially for those with ears to hear. And Sunday's teaching that we shared here in the barn was was no exception to this. Jesus taught us to pray. And to pray persistently. Showed us how to deal with our demons. He talked about how to clean house and most of all, in all of this, to be full of the fullness of God. How to have not just clean houses, but full houses. 
And in talking about this and taking the people into a depth of understanding related to the demons and the, and the strong man Satan himself and the filling of God's powerful spirit, picking up right where we left off in verse 27 of Luke chapter 11, it says, While Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. Which is why I think Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 said women need to remain silent in the church. (laughs) Pastor, what are you going to do with that when we get there? We'll get there. But she just blurts this out. Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. What she's saying, blessed be your mother Mary. And Jesus says in verse 28, on the contrary... Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Now this woman wants to honor Mary. That's fine, that's nice. But Jesus says there is a far greater honor and blessing even than being the mother who bore the Messiah. And that blessing comes in hearing and doing the word of God. Remember in another place, Jesus says, Who are my mother and my brothers? Those who observe and keep the word. These are my mother and my brothers. That's my family. Those who hear my word and act on my word and do my word. By the way, you Bible students, you remember the final recorded words of Mary. The last thing that Mary said at that wedding in Cana of Galilee. The last thing we have in Scripture that was actually spoken by her. John chapter 2 verse 5. Whatever he says to you, do it. Good advice. Verse 29, as the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign. And no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So the queen of Sheba, she comes up from her home because she's heard so much about Solomon and his greatness, his wealth unsurpassed, his riches. And the queen of Sheba was not so impressed with the wealth of Solomon as she was with the wisdom of Solomon. The words that he spoke, that's what really got her attention. The people of Nineveh, They didn't repent because of the puking of a whale. That's not what got their hearts to turn around. You know, some have have thought about that or surmised, and I may have shared back uh, in previous teachings that think about it, for Jonah to be in the belly of this whale for three days and three nights and then to be spit out on the earth, it's a good chance that he didn't look so good. In fact, it's thought by some that some of the acidic juices and and stuff inside the belly of the whale would have bleached him. His hair, his skin, everything. And he would have been herped up on the shore looking a little scary. And that's why the Ninevites said, Oh, whatever you say, we're going to believe. No, no. The Ninevites were not repentant because a whale herped him up. 
they were repentant because of the preaching of the word by Jonah. It was the words of Solomon's wisdom that impressed the queen of Sheba. It was the word preached by Jonah that caused the people to repent. And I share that because, my friends, it's never signs and miracles that changes a heart. It is the preaching of the Word of God. It is the wisdom of God. This changes hearts. This changes lives. I'm not saying God can't use the miraculous or supernatural things, and He does, especially in third world nations that are not as privy to the Word. But the power unto repentance comes through hearing the Word of Christ. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. And so, it is through the preaching of the message. And Jesus says, and don't miss this, He says the only sign that matters is the sign of Jonah. That's all this generation needs. That's all this generation is going to get. The sign of Jonah. Jonah chapter 2 verse 3 says, For you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. Well, Jesus referred to that, the sign of Jonah, three times. Perhaps more of it in the Scriptures, Luke 11, Matthew 12, and again in Matthew 16, He refers to the sign of Jonah as the only sign this generation would receive. Matthew 12, verse 40, He says, Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Sign of Jonah. Now I know there are those who say, Well, wait. If Jesus was crucified on a Friday and then was buried that late afternoon, early evening, and then was in the grave on Saturday and then resurrected Sunday morning, that's not three days and three nights. Right? That's really only kind of half of Friday, all of Saturday, and part of Sunday. Not much of Sunday at that. And two nights, not three. And he says, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so some have said, well, then we've got to move it back. Jesus must have been crucified on a Wednesday, you know, to get all of this taken care of. And the thing you need to understand is that the Jewish understanding of a day and a night included any portion of a 24-hour day. So as long as Jesus was crucified on a Friday, they considered that one day and one night. In the grave, Friday and then on into Saturday, day and night. Sunday, day and night, even though we would see it differently. Well, how do you know this? Well, we have some understanding. Rabbi Eliezer ben Atzeria, around A.D. 100, wrote, A day and a night make a whole day, and a portion of a whole day is reckoned as a whole day. So that works. And if you're saying, well, I, I still struggle with that. I, I think we've got to bump it back to Wednesday. That's fine. Bump it back to Wednesday. It's not going to change anything. It's the sign of Jonah. It's the fact that the Son of Man would be in the belly of the earth would be encompassed. As Jonah said, in the heart of the sea, so Jesus said the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth, will be buried, will be dead. This is the one sign that matters. It's the only one with eternal significance. It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And He's the greater than Solomon. And He's the greater than Jonah. And Paul explicitly states this, turning your Bibles over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Because the sign of Jonah is absolutely critical. It is the cornerstone of Christian faith. If you're new to Christian faith, you need to understand this is what we base the rest of it on. 
Verse 12, 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ is preached that He has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. Now stop for a minute and think about this. Jesus said the Queen of Sheba will rise up with the men of this generation and condemn it. He said the men of Nineveh will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it. What does that mean? Resurrection. Not reincarnation. Not any other Asian. Resurrection. That Jesus said these will be raised. And Paul's saying Christ was raised. That's the whole thing. But some of you are saying that He hasn't been raised. Verse 14, If Christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain and your faith also is in vain. You might as well go home and watch American Idol game. (laughs) Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that He raised Christ whom He did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. See, that's the thing. Jesus can die for your sins, but if He stays dead, then the power of death is not broken. Death still holds sway over all sin and we're in trouble. He says, verse 18, Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only... We are of all men most to be pitied. Poor, pathetic Christians who really think that you've got some kind of hope after life when you don't, if if the dead are not raised. But now, verse 20, Paul says, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ... All will be made alive. And by the way, that is everybody. All will be made alive. Everybody will be resurrected. Believers in Christ and non-believers in Christ will all be resurrected, but it will be a different resurrection. Those who believe in Jesus resurrected unto life, eternal. Those not believing in Jesus resurrected unto judgment. And they will come before the Lord at the judgment. Verse 23, each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and after that those who are Christ's at his coming. And then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. The sign of Jonah. That's it. The resurrection of Jesus. And the wonder of the resurrection is the demolition of death and the continuation of life. And so Jesus says, that's the sign you get. Death is, is now no more than a fish story. For those of you who believe in Jesus. Verse 33. Jesus goes on. He says, no one after lighting a lamp puts it away in a cellar nor under a basket, but on the lampstand so that those who enter may see the light. That makes sense. The eye is the lamp of your body. And when your eye is clear, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is also full of darkness. Then watch out that the light in you is not darkness. If therefore your whole body is full of light with no dark part in it, 
it will be wholly illumined as when the lamp illumines you with its rays. How do we see our way clear to knowing God? Now understand, Jesus is not going off on a random bunny trail here. You know, talking about the sign of Jonah, now he's talking about lamps in a living room. What's the deal, Jesus? Where are you going with this? He's on the same place that he's been since the woman shouted out, Blessed is your mom! No, 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 no. Blessed are those who what? Hear the Word and do it. Jesus is talking about the Word. Queen of Sheba. Men of Nineveh. Hearing the Word. Touched by the Word. Changed by the Word. And now Jesus starts talking about this light. What's the deal? The light that pierces the darkness within us is the Word of God. Where the Word is spoken, there is light. There is illumination. There is revelation. Proverbs 13, verse, or 15, verse 30 says, The light of the eyes rejoices the heart. And Jesus is the light of the world. And He is the Word of God. Therefore, the Word is the light and the light is the Word. And He fills us with light, with clarity, with understanding. And as we've talked about in here before, isn't it amazing? The more you know Jesus, the more you understand things even before they happen in this world. Well, I'm not talking about being clairvoyant. What I'm talking about is you read this world rightly. And you're not surprised when things go south. And you're not surprised when things happen that a year ago you knew were going to happen. I'm not going to give any examples. I could. Lots of them. But there's illumination. Your understanding increases. You pick up the news, you read it, you go, yeah, I knew that was going to happen. I saw that coming. Well, how did you see it coming? The Word illuminates. The Word gives light where otherwise there would be darkness. However, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4 tells us the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they might not see the light of the Gospel, of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Light or dark? Do you want to see your way clear in this world? Or do you want to walk in darkness? And so continuing on this theme, verse 37, it tells us, now when he had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him, and he went in and reclined at the table. When the Pharisee saw, when the Pharisee saw it, he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you you are full of robbery and wickedness. You foolish ones! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give that which is within as charity, and then all things are clean for you. What happened? Jesus comes in for lunch, and he just starts stirring it up. I love this about him. This was not unintended. It wasn't that Jesus went in there and started eating. You know, have you ever done this? You sit down to the meal, you start eating, and someone goes, are we going to pray? And you're like... <laughs> Yeah, let's go right ahead. You know. So he, he's eating, but he hasn't done the ceremonial washing. Well, what's that? They would take an eggshell. I told you this before. They'd take a half eggshell filled filled with water, and they would pour the eggshell first over the tip of the fingers, and they would let it run down to the wrist. Then they would dip another eggshell, turn their hand over, and they would pour from the wrist to have it drip down on the fingers. And then they would rub the palms of their hands together, and now they were clean to eat. And the truly pious Jews would do this between each course of the meal. Jesus didn't forget to wash up. Jesus did this on purpose. This was a setup. 
He is intentionally getting the attention of this Pharisee. He knows what the Pharisee is going to say. He knows what's going on here. And so he doesn't do this ceremonial washing. He just sits down and digs in and the Pharisee is like, appalled, shocked. And Emily Post would be so chagrined. And Jesus goes into this beautiful teaching and note this in verse 41. And we've heard the Pharisee stuff before and how he gets on to them about being filthy on the inside and trying to look righteous on the outside. But verse 41 is key here. Give that which is within as charity and then all things are clean for you. But what does that mean? The word charity here. Eliemosune. Eliemosune means alms. It means acts of giving mercy to the poor specifically. Okay, so this is giving to the poor. This is caring for those less fortunate. This is compassion for those who are in need. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying compassion is cleansing. Give that which is within as mercy, He says, and then all things are clean for you. When you are compassionate to someone less fortunate, when you are caring to someone in need, it cleanses you. There is a cleansing process that goes on here. And what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, don't wash your hands of mercy. You're doing all of these ceremonial things, but you're forgetting what really matters. Compassion purifies the heart better than dozens of grade A extra large eggshells filled with water washing the hands. We're back to the inside. We're back to the heart. And Jesus says, if you want a heart of compassion, cleansed, then be compassionate. And you will be clean. Paul picks up on this in Titus chapter 1, verse 15. He says, To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him. Wait, you mean there are people who claim to be Christians and they really aren't? Oh yeah. He says, Being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. And that's the Pharisees. Oh, perhaps not all of them, and there were a few we know got saved. There were others whose lives were changed by Jesus as they really processed through this, but the basic mentality across the board of the Pharisees was they were self-righteous, and they had long since forgotten the purifying effect of compassion. And so Jesus says in verse 42, and He really gets after this guy, Woe to you Pharisees! I haven't been invited to someone's house for lunch and started in on them like that. But Jesus does. And, and we don't know how He's saying, whoa, you know, I mean, we, we look at the word whoa and we typically think, whoa, whoa to you Pharisees. It, it may have just been, again, compassion, whoa to you Pharisees. You know, spoken with it, you, you, don't, you don't understand what's going on here. Woe to you. You pay a tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb and yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Now, note this. It's strange to us. We go mint and rue and garden herbs? Was that part of the requirement of the tithe? No. It was just nitpicking. Did you give 10% today? Well, I was just out in the garden. I clipped some herbs. Took care of that. There's a little tongue-in-cheek here. Jesus is making a point. You'll tie it to the nth degree, but you won't show mercy and compassion. And know what He says, you should have done 
the latter, that is justice and love, without neglecting the former. What does that tell us? Jesus has no problem with tithing. Tithing, my friends, is not just an Old Testament concept. It is a biblical concept. We're not under law. We're not called to be people who tithe because if we don't, we're going to pay for it. But I absolutely believe that if you would accept the principle of tithing, that is giving the first fruits, the first 10% of whatever God gives you, watch what He does. Don't neglect that. Just don't forget justice and the love of God. Do it all. You keep the fine points, the minutia, but you it's to the exclusion of the big, bold message of love. Verse 43, Woe to you Pharisees! For you love the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you! You are like concealed tombs and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. Numbers 19, verse 16. Anyone who in the open field touches one who has been slain with a sword or who has died naturally or a human bone or a grave shall be unclean for seven days. In the law, if you're walking through a field and you happen to walk over a grave that you didn't know was there and someone says, oh, you're unclean, seven days. Bye-bye, out of the camp, go somewhere else because you just walked on a grave. And so the Jewish people were meticulous about whitewashing their tombs so that it was obvious where they were. So you could see them very clearly and thus go around them and not defile yourself. Well, Jesus says, you Pharisees, you're like concealed tombs that nobody knows is there. People walk by you and they get defiled by you. That that external religious behavior only obscures, it only conceals the death and the defilement that's really going on inside. You dress it up on the outside all you want, but there's still death there. Verse 45, one of the lawyers said to him in reply, Now note this, first of all. Lawyers. We've seen these lawyers before. Some of your translations say publicans. Okay, So Jesus gets after the publicans, the Democrats, everybody. He gets after all of them, right? So the lawyers here, the word here in the Greek is nomikos. And nomikos literally is an expert in the Torah law. An expert of the word. So anytime you see lawyers in the Scriptures, it's not talking about someone who's gone to law school. Well, I guess it has. He has. Law school in the sense of the Torah. They knew the book. They knew the laws. They knew the prescriptions. They knew the oral tradition surrounding the law. That was their deal. And so they were often with the Pharisees so the Pharisees could, you know, refer or could talk to them or or could pull them aside. What what about this? What does it say in the law? Well, it says this. Okay, great. They knew the law inside out. And one of the lawyers is sitting there at lunch and says to him in reply, Teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. And he said, Woe to you! (laughs) You're right! You're absolutely right! Thank you for pointing that out, my friend. Woe to you, lawyers as well! For you weigh down men with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you! For you build the tombs of the prophets... And it was your fathers who killed them. So you are witnesses and approve the deeds of your fathers because it was they who killed them and you build their tombs. 
For this reason also the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill, and some they will persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the house of God. Yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves did not enter, and you hindered those who were entering. Wow. I mean, he is just taking them apart. From Abel, all the way back to the beginning, from Abel whose blood was spilled by Cain, all the way down the line to Zechariah, and yes, this is the prophet Zechariah of Scripture, whose blood was spilled by the people who stoned him to death between the altar and the house of the Lord. That's how Zechariah died. From Abel to Zechariah, every ounce of blood unjustly, unrighteously spilled was now being charged to that generation. That is a lot of blood. And these are the ones who are about to call for the blood of Jesus. And as they are in their hearts hardening against Him and getting angry with Him and beginning to plot as we'll see ways to to take Him out, they were ignoring two absolutely huge issues. And this is what Jesus was pointing out here. The payment for all this blood has now come due. You've got to pay up. God in His forbearance overlooked all of that blood and all of that sin up till right now, Jesus says. The balloon payment has matured. And it is time to pay for the blood. And they were ignoring that. But they were ignoring something even greater. That Jesus came to pay it. That's why He was there. To pay for all of that and the sins of mankind. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 says, According to the law, and this is pointing back to Leviticus 17.11, almost all things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. You know that's what the book of Leviticus is about? Blood. It is about the shedding of blood. It is about the sacrifices, the blood sacrifices that God laid out to try to teach the people how serious sin really is. Sin will kill you to the very last drop of blood. And it is only blood that can bring full redemption. And the question is, is it going to be your blood or is it going to be Jesus' blood that's going to pay for the sin? 1 John 1.7 says, If we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. How does that work? We say if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship. What does that mean? Hey, if we're real with each other, we can be friends. If we're authentic, we can walk in relationship. If I'm true with you about who I am, and you're true with me about who you are, we'll be friends. That's the way it works, right? And the Lord says, that's what I want. I just want authenticity. I want to be genuine. You with me, me with you. Let's not hide things. Let's not lie about things. Let's not try to cover things up. Let's just be real. And let's recognize that you have a real need and that I have the real ability to wash away that need with my blood. And if we will walk like that with the Lord, His blood will cleanse us. It's beautiful. Jesus came 
to make the payment. Verse 53, Well, when he left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects, plotting against him to catch him in something he might say. My brother, I was talking with this morning, was telling me about uh, on the news, and I didn't even see this, so this is second-hand knowledge, but he said, did you see it on the news the other day, the basketball player? Maybe some of you have seen this. Yes. Who... Uh, was in the stands, there, there's a, a, a guy in the stands who was baiting him and arguing with him. And the player was saying, and, and what you don't see at first, because you're focused on apparently these two guys arguing, the basketball player and the guy in the stands, you don't see the two women sitting on either side of him, and they're egging him on too. But the second that this basketball player finally loses it and he pushes the guy, the woman sitting on the right of him goes, Gotcha! We gotcha! Yeah, we, and it's on YouTube and on the news and everything. Gotcha! <laughs> and we were talking about that. My bro and I this morning was thinking, that is exactly what Satan does. He baits you and he lures you and he pushes you and when you can't take it anymore and you push back, <laughs> I gotcha! Now, now I got you right where I want you and I'm posting it on YouTube. <laughs> And that's what the Pharisees were trying to do with Jesus. They plotted. They're watching him. Bringing in all the lawyers, their best legal minds. We've got to find a loophole in this guy's teaching. Got to find a way to trip him up, to make him, you know, to discredit him. That's what they're doing. Verse 1 of chapter 12. Under these circumstances, and this is great. Luke points this out, gives us the context. Under these circumstances, after so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were stepping on one another. He began saying to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now get that picture. Luke says the masses were just piled around Jesus. People coming from everywhere to see him, to hear his word. And Jesus gives an aside to his followers. He says, guys, all it takes to leaven this lump to leaven this loaf, to leaven the masses here, all it takes is a little tiny bit of pharisaical hypocrisy. And all of these people will be messed up by it. You just need one or two. Think about it. If you're in a movie theater and something happens on the screen, if you start clapping, people will join you. You know? Or if you're sitting perhaps on a Wednesday night study and you start yawning. (laughs) Even the mention of the word yawning will make everybody start yawning. (laughs) Everyone's going to watch and see how this works. (laughs) You start to feel it. Oh no, oh no, oh no. But it's true. All it takes is just a little bit of someone to do something. All it takes is one or two people to shout, Crucify Him! And the whole crowd joins in. Just a little leaven. That's all they need. Jesus says, But there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed, and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops. Oive. Husbands and wives, the things that you talk about at home that you don't think anyone else in the church hears you share is going to be heard. The things that we say in secret, 
Things that we text just to that one person that we don't think anyone's going to know about. And of course, in this age, everybody knows everything and the NSA has got us all down. (laughs) But we really are. Isn't it interesting? We are in a time and an age where privacy is just going away. But what Jesus says here is you really never had it. And what he's pointing to is the issue of integrity. That... You can't be one way one place in the dark back room of the house and another way another place in the nice bright light of the barn. He's trying to get across the point. Be who you are all the time. Because what you said back there that you didn't think was going to be heard, it's going to be heard. What you did over here that you didn't think anyone was going to know, it's going to get posted. It's going to get out. Not only is it going to get out, but all of these things will come back. There are radio waves right now. John Corson mentioned this. I heard this the other day. So funny. It's in the middle of a, I think it was the Phil Donahue show. Those of you who remember back when Phil Donahue had a TV show. And all of a sudden, right in the middle of the show one afternoon, three minutes, the show was preempted by Howdy Doody time. <laughs> Three minutes of the old black and white howdy duty time. Now that'll really date somebody, but if you and apparently what happened is the radio waves from Howdy Duty bounced off of some distant star and came back and showed up on TV. Which means <laughs> Howdy Duty's still going. <laughs> And all these, and you know, we, we think the show is over. It's done. No, it's, it's still out there. I mean, the radio waves are still floating around. And it's a good picture that we think we've said it, it's done, it's in the can. Honey, we'll just leave those thoughts at home. No. It's out there. It's going to come back around. Do you see why we so desperately need the washing with the water and the Word? you see why we so desperately need the washing of the blood of Christ to cleanse us? Because we are so filthy ourselves, we don't even realize when it's coming back around. And it's going to hit us if we're not cleansed by Jesus. Hypocrisy and the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, gang, it is all about facades and smoke screens. The Bible says, Romans 12, verse 9, love without hypocrisy. Love without hypocrisy. Just be real. Again, be authentic in a relationship, be honest. True love is genuine, authentic, honest, real. James 3 verse 17 tells us the wisdom from above, godly wisdom, is first pure, and then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. I love that. That means God's love is not going to trick us. And the love of God is what it is. Love. There are no hidden secrets. There are no strings attached. The love of God is just love, unwavering, the real deal. We, on the other hand, think we can get away with grumbling in the dark as if no one's going to know. We should learn from Israel. Psalm 106, verse 24 tells us they despised the pleasant land. They did not believe in His Word. They grumbled in their tents. They did not listen to the voice of the Lord. Now they thought, as long as we're home... Honey, shut the tent flap. i got to tell you what Moses said today. You're not going to believe it. And what an idiot to think that he's out here and leading us. I'm as good as he is. You know, oh, he's got a big stab. Ooh, you know. (laughs) And all that grumbling. And they didn't think anyone could hear. 
until the psalmist wrote about what they were that they were doing this. It all comes out. By the way, if you notice yourself grumbling, be careful because you can't hide it. It's going to get heard. It will be revealed. So what do we do? Well, there is one solution to diffuse our grumbling and our hypocrisy, and that is very simply listening to the voice of the Lord. Just listen to the voice of the Lord. I think it's interesting, Jesus slightly altered these words in this teaching from an earlier teaching. And understand that, when you're reading through the Gospels, we got four Gospel perspectives, and just because a teaching is similar doesn't mean that one of them must have gotten it right and the other two are just slightly off. Oftentimes, the difference in teachings is a different location. That Jesus, as we talked about earlier on, taught the Sermon on the Mount, and then He gave the Sermon on the Plain. Two different places. Very A lot of similarities in the two sermons, but He took material from there and He used it over here. I'd do that. If I'm called to go speak at a retreat, I'm going to take stuff that I've taught. You know? And Jesus would reteach and re-speak things depending on the audience, depending on who was listening. In this case, here, at this point, He makes the comment that what you, what you have whispered, what you have said in the inner rooms, what, what we've talked about, what we've grumbled about, thought was hidden, it's going to come to light. It's going to be shouted on the rooftops. Conversely, back in Matthew chapter 10, verse 27, at another time, Jesus said, What I tell you in the darkness, speak out in the light, and what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the rooftops. So if you're in the dark of your room, closed behind closed doors, maybe it's the middle of the night, and the Lord tells you something, proclaim it. Speak it out. The Lord whispers words, talk about it. You hear it in the night, you shout it out in the morning. You hear it in the basement, you climb up on the rooftop and you shout it out. You listen to the voice of the Lord and you allow His Word to become your Word. And then we live lives that are God-word. Get it? His Word, your Word, God-word. That's how it works. Speak His words. Think His thoughts. What I tell you in the darkness, Jesus said, speak it in the light. And so we look for the whisperings of His Spirit to be coming out of our own mouths. 